0: Okay, well, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, 169. Psalm 119, 169, and we will read to verse 176. Psalm 119, 169. There the word of Christ says this. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live, that I may praise you, and let your ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. For I do not forget your commandments. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking for you to seek your people. Lord, we confess and we know that we are still sinners, Lord, that have a flesh, that resists the will of God, that militates, Lord, against your will and those things that are pleasing to you. And that, Lord, we do go astray. But, Lord, we ask that you would seek us and that, Lord, you would bind us to you so that we walk in the pathways that are pleasing in your sight, Lord, that we might run into the highway of holiness. Lord, keep us from forgetting your commandments, Lord, from utterly forgetting them, Lord, that we might endure and persevere to the very end. So Lord, we ask that you give to us your grace today, your strength. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we ask today through the preaching of your word that you would fill us, Lord, with your grace, with your power, with your mercy, Lord, with your strength, and that you would cause us to walk in the pathway of your commandments. And it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Well, we've come to the end of our study of Psalm 119. This is our 22nd week of Psalm 119 and as we conclude this study, I think it would be good to be reminded of a few points that we mentioned at the very beginning. First, we are reminded that this is the longest chapter of the longest book in the Bible, a book as well that has been given to guide our prayers and our worship to God. And here in the book of Psalms that is given to us for this purpose, and here in Psalm 119, this longest chapter of the book of Psalms It is devoted to extolling the greatness of the Word of God. And we are reminded that the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.16 that we are to admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. We are explicitly told in the New Testament by the Holy Apostle to sing psalms with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And that would certainly include Psalm 119 a psalm dedicated to extolling the greatness of the Word of God, the centrality of the Word of God for the Christian life. It is impossible for someone to know God, to worship God, to serve God, to love God, apart from the Word of Christ. The idea that our love for God, our service to God, or our worship of God could be detached from the Holy Bible is completely antithetical to the teaching of scripture. From any part of the Bible, whether New Testament or Old Testament, we must build our faith upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And this is what we have seen in Psalm 119. The idea that for the prophet David, love of God could be separated from the word of God is completely foreign to his desires and the prayers that we have seen expressed throughout this psalm for him to love God is to love God's word his greatest desire is to know God through the word of God also I remind you that when the prophet David is writing psalm 119 the scriptures that have been written up to that point are the law of Moses the book of Joshua and perhaps judges Ruth and Job his life was before everything else that is written in the bible So what he says concerning the word of God, while it applies to everything from Genesis to Revelation, what he is saying, he's saying about these parts of the Old Testament, which is mostly the law of Moses. Yet he loves the law of Moses. He loves the law of God because it teaches him how to be reconciled to God and how to live a life pleasing to the Lord. I say this because there are few today who love all of the Bible. They may cherry pick a few passages here and there. And many times people will love the New Testament and have disdain and hatred for the Old Testament. But there are a few people who love all of the word of God. But the prophet David loves all of the word of God. And he's speaking here mostly of the law of Moses, where he has been taught these things. Lastly, we should remember that Psalm 119 is written from the perspective of a Christian. One who has been born again, who has a new heart, who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. The longings, the prayers, the desires expressed in Psalm 119 are that of a true believer. And these longings and desires are not unique to the prophet David, but will be true of all of those who have been born again. These things are not true of him because he is a prophet, but because he is a Christian, because he is a redeemed man we have seen over and over and over again how the prophet wants to obey God. He's saying this not as someone trying to earn his salvation by his own good works. He's saying this as someone who already possesses salvation by the grace of God. And because of the love of God given to him, he wants to love God in return by keeping his will, by obeying him, as Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So he's saying these things as one, who has a new heart, who has been saved by grace through faith. He is a new creature in Christ Jesus, and this new creature wants his new life to align with the will of Christ. He wants to obey God because he loves God, because God loved him first. And this is how we must be as well. So what he's describing here, these prayers... These should be prayers that are common to us, that we are constantly praying. These desires should be in us as well. They should be there, and they should be growing within us throughout the course of our Christian life. So may this be true of us. Let's see here then this final section. 169, Psalm 119, 169. He says, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Here, the prophet has a fervent cry to the Lord. He knows that God is the only one who can help him, the only source of grace, the only source of strength for the child of God. He is crying out to the true and living God. He's not crying out to false gods. He's not turning to mortal man. He's not looking for any help in this earth but he's crying out to the true God, the God who dwells in heaven, and he's asking for God to give him power to help him in his time of need. This cry does not come naturally for any man, but it is a part of our salvation. It is the result of redemption, of the new heart, the new man, not the natural man. The natural man does not do this, according to Romans 3, verse 11. Romans 3, 11 says, There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. No one in their natural state seeks for the true God. Now, they may be religious. They may be looking and uh, have the appearance of seeking for God, but not the true God. They seek after false gods, after idols of their own making." But that's not what David is doing here he's crying out to the true God, and he's doing so because he is a new man. He understands that God has the power to answer prayer and he's fervently seeking God by crying out to him. Romans three is speaking of the natural man, the carnal man, the man who's dead in trespasses. Psalm one nineteen is the redeemed man who has the spirit of God within him and What does the Spirit of God teach us to do? To cry out to our Father. Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. The Spirit within us teaches us to cry out to God as our Father. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father the Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are children of God and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. There, the Spirit causes him to cry out to his heavenly Father. He teaches us to do this. He gives us these impulses, these inclinations to cry out to God in our time of need, to cry out to God for help just as a newborn baby instinctively knows to cry for his father or his mother. When the baby is in need of something, he cries out so that he will get help, so that he will get attention, so that the parent will come to his aid and give to him what he needs. And so it is with the children of God. They are taught by the Spirit of God to cry out to their Heavenly Father for help, for grace, for mercy, for strength in their time of need. A stillborn child does not cry because the stillborn child has no life in him. And there are many stillborn Christians. Stillborn Christians, they claim to be children of God, but they do not do what living children do. They do not cry out to God, but they are dead still because they do not cry. But those who are alive in Christ, true children of God, will cry to their father for help. And what does he want? What is his cry about? He says, Give me understanding according to your word. Right. He knows that on his own, he does not have the ability to discern what is the will of God. He cannot understand the doctrines of the Bible, he cannot understand the commandments of the Bible so as to obey them unless God teaches him, unless God gives him understanding. This understanding is more than mere intellectual assent to certain truths in the Bible. A man can understand some factual things about the Bible without having true understanding, without having true faith. This understanding is the understanding of true faith, true belief in the truths of Scripture that sees the goodness of the Word of God and seeks to incorporate the teaching of the Bible into his daily life into his beliefs, his values, his practices, his goals, his ambitions, whatever it is, he wants the word of God to form those things. He wants to understand and see the goodness of God, the truthfulness of God's word, the righteousness in God's word, so that he does not reject those things, but he incorporates them into his life. This is as it says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you can discern the will of God, the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. That's what he wants to understand. He wants to understand the teaching of the Bible and see it in its true light. See it the way that God sees it as good, acceptable, and perfect will of God so that he will incorporate it into his life, into his faith, into his practices. Psalm 119, Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Here, he calls his prayer a supplication, another way of describing the intensity of his prayer. He is not half-heartedly calling out to God. He is not doing it in a whole hum way, but he is zealously, fervently calling to God. And he asks that his supplication come before the Lord, that God would hear his prayer and that God would answer him according to what he is asking. Now, of course, he's saying this not meaning that God doesn't know and hear and see all things. He's not saying, God, I'm praying to you, and I know that you're distracted with all these other things, but I want you to pay attention to me. Of course, he knows that whatever he says, whatever he utters, even before a word is on his tongue, God already knows it. God knows and sees all things. He's saying this as a metaphor, as a manner of speaking, meaning he wants God to answer him. He wants his supplication to come before God, meaning he wants God to give him what he is asking him for, wants God to be favorable to him. And this is the confidence God's children have when they pray according to the will of God. Can we pray prayers that we know are according to the will of God? And the answer is yes. And when we pray according to the will of God, we know that He hears us and we know that He will give us what we ask of Him. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 says such. 1 John five thirteen. says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. There, again, When he says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He means he hears us favorably. He hears us and he's going to answer us. He's going to give us what we ask of God. God hears with favor those prayers that are according to his will. And he grants the answer to the one who is praying, to the one that is crying out to God. He gives him what he's asking for when his prayers conform to the will of God. This is in contrast to prayers that are contrary to the will of God. God does not hear them, meaning God does not answer them. He does not give them what they ask for. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. There, in some regard, they do not have have the blessing of God because they're not seeking it, they're not asking for it. But then in other regards, they are asking, but they're not receiving. And why are they not receiving? because they're asking with wrong motives. For pleasure, they're asking God to bless them so that they can then spend it on their pleasures. And will God answer that prayer? No, because it's contrary to his will. Their prayers are being denied because they're praying with evil motives, praying for their own pleasure, asking for the favor of God over and against their neighbor for the purpose of pleasure-seeking. God will not answer these prayers. This is as it says in Psalm sixty-six eighteen: 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But in Psalm 119, the prophet is not asking for something contrary to God's will, nor is he asking with evil motives. He's praying for the right things and he's praying for the right reasons. He's asking God to deliver him. Deliver me from the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. Deliver me from those who want to cause me to stumble, who are tempting me to sin, who want to turn me away from the Lord. Isn't this what the world, the flesh, and the devil do? They want to keep us from doing the will of God. They militate against the Christian life. So he's asking God, Lord, I can't overcome them, but you can. You have the strength. You have the power, you have the ability to overcome my enemies. So help me, deliver me from them, because I want to live a godly life. And they're trying to keep me from doing that. So Lord, come to my aid, come to my help. And will God help him? Yes, of course he will. God will give him strength. He will aid him so that he is able to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. 119 verse 171. Let my lips utter praise for you teach me your statutes here he's asking for god to transform his lips so that they utter the praises of god this shows how utterly dependent he is on the grace of god he understands and knows that he cannot so much as utter one word of praise to god unless god strengthens him unless god changes him unless god gives him lips To praise Him. It is only by the grace of God that a man can use his lips or any other part of his body for the glory of God and not for sin. And here, he's not merely praying for the initial grace of God that transforms us from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. And then it's up to us, the rest of our life, in our own strength, to live the Christian life. But that's not the case here. He's already a Christian. He's already a believer, but he knows that even as a Christian, throughout the remainder of his Christian life, he is utterly, completely dependent on the grace of God for everything good, right, and true. He wants to praise God with his lips, but he will only do so if God grants it, if God gives it as a gracious gift to him. Didn't Jesus say, apart from me, you can do nothing in John fifteen five. We can't do anything apart from Christ. Nothing good apart from Him. We cannot even one utter one word of praise to God apart from Christ. Naturally, our lips are full of deadly poison, filled with deceit, hypocrisy, lies, impurity. What is on the lips of man naturally is contrary to the will of God. He wants his lips transformed so that instead of speaking lies, he's using his lips to praise God and proclaiming the mighty deeds of God in the world. And he knows that this will happen because God is the one who will teach him, right? He says that, let my lips utter your praise for you teach me your statutes. When God teaches a man his statutes, in those statutes, that word is in that man, in his heart, because that's where God teaches us in the inner man, in the inner being on the heart. Well, what is in the heart will come out of the lips. So when God teaches his statutes in the heart, the result is his lips will utter praises of God. What is on the inside will come to the outside. This is as it says in 2 Corinthians 4.13. 2 Corinthians 4.13. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. When we believe, truly believe, true faith, the result is it comes out of our lips, out of our mouth. We will speak these things. We will declare these things to be true. When we have a true comprehension of the glory and majesty of God, then we will utter his praises in this world, whether it's in our own personal life, with our family, with our church, Even amongst the unbelievers, we're going to be speaking of his word. If we believe it, if we believe, we will speak. When he teaches his word, we believe it. And when we believe it, we will speak it. The lips will declare his praise. Psalm 119, 172. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all of your commandments are righteousness. The tongues of men are like serpents. The tongue of a serpent, the mouth of the serpent, the poisonous viper, is filled with deadly poison, with toxin that will kill. What comes out of the mouth of men naturally is a deadly poison that leads to hell. It has death within it, and it leads men, it leads their souls to hell. This is according to James chapter 3. Other passages as well, but we'll look at James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verse 1. says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great are they driven and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life And is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed. And has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out? From the same opening, both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. There he says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. By hell. That it is a world of iniquity. That it defiles the entire man. That it is set, It's full of restless evil. Full of deadly evil poison. This is what the tongue is naturally in our natural state. This is what even our tongues will be if our tongue is controlled by the flesh. It will do these types of things. Well, the prophet David, being a redeemed man, having the spirit of God within him, he doesn't want his tongue to be spewing out this kind of stuff. He wants his tongue to be used in a good way in a way that is proper, in a way that is pleasing to God. He doesn't want it to be filled with poison. He wants it to be filled with truth and righteousness, with life instead of death. So how do we ensure that our tongues are used for good and not for evil? How can we know if our tongue is filled with poison or if it's filled with life-giving medicine? Well, notice what he says. Let my tongue sing of your word. When the word of God is on our tongue, instead of my own ideas, instead of my own opinions, instead of my own wisdom, or instead of repeating the wisdom of those of this world, but instead I'm using my tongue to speak the word of Christ, to sing the word of God, then it will be used in an honorable way. One that brings glory to God and a an benefit, not only to my own soul, but to the souls of my wife, of my children, of my fellow believer, and even of unbelievers out in the world. It's going to benefit everyone when the word of God is on my tongue instead of my own ideas and my own wisdom. Romans chapter 6. This is what we should pray and what we should seek. To use the tongue, and not only the tongue, but all of the members of our body in a way that is pleasing to God instead of using them for sin. Romans 6, verse 12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall have no mastery over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Then also verse 19, verse 19 says, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. There he's telling the church, the believer, that since we've been, made alive with Christ, we've been baptized into his death and we've been raised with Christ to live a new life, then we should not use our members to commit sins against God. We shouldn't use our body and the members of our body as instruments of unrighteousness, but rather we should use them as instruments for righteousness. Well, the tongue is one of the members of the body. So how will this member, the tongue, be presented as a slave to righteousness? How will it be used in a way that is proper and fitting according to the will of God? Well, here's the solution. Singing the word of God by singing and speaking God's word, not singing my thoughts about the word, but singing God's thoughts about God's word. Let the word of God inform my songs so that I am singing about God's word, what comes from God's word. Isn't that what we're doing in Psalm 119? When we're singing Psalm 119, we're not singing man's opinion about the word of God. We're singing God's judgments. We're singing God's own testimony concerning his own word. So can we go wrong when that's on our lips? Can we utter a lie and something untruthful when that is on our tongue? It's impossible if we're singing the word of God. This is why we sing the songs of the Bible. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and not the songs of men. Why would we want to sing the songs of men when we can sing the songs of God, the songs of the word of God? How can we ever go wrong when we're singing the songs of the Bible? It's impossible because they've been written by the Holy Spirit of God, Holy Spirit of God who cannot lie and never makes an error. When we sing God's word, then we will be singing about his righteousness. For all of his commandments are righteous. Isn't that a noble use of the tongue? Instead of using the tongue to speak evil, using it to sing about God's righteous commandments. This is the sanctification of the tongue. So sing of God's righteous commandments, whether that be the two great commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor, or whether that be the ten holy commandments of God, or whatever other implications are drawn from those commandments, such as we've seen in the book of Proverbs. Whatever is according to God's commandment is righteous, and that should be on our tongue. Whether we're singing it, speaking it, however it's coming out, that should be on our lips, on our tongue, and that will be for our sanctification, for the sanctification of the tongue and a benefit to everyone. Isn't it better if my tongue has life-giving medicine on it to my wife and children, to those that I love, instead of deadly poison? Well, that's what we should be doing. 119, 173. 173 says, let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. He asked for the hand of the Lord to be ready to help him, the hand representing the mighty power of God. He desires the powerful, mighty grace of God in his life to help him overcome sin and to live a godly life. God's power manifests His glory. God's power manifests His glory. It says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The same mighty power, the glorious power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is now available to us. It is there in God's people. It is the power that brought us from the dead, that gave to us new life at our conversion, and that power is still available to us to help us live the Christian life, to do those things that are pleasing to the Lord. God has more than enough resources. He has plentiful resources and power necessary to help us in our time of need, regardless of how dire and desperate the situation may be. There is never a situation that is so great that God's power is not able to overcome it. He can do far more than we could ever think or ever imagine. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Ephesians three twenty says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, Beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. There, he is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Anything that we can ask or think of in terms of our spiritual life, in terms of our deliverance, he can do more beyond anything we could even begin to think of. And where is this power found? He says, it's the power that works within us. The power is within us through the Holy Spirit of God who indwells believers. So the power of God is there to help them overcome sin, to deliver them from all of their enemies. We have so many examples in the Bible of the mighty power of God doing things that are impossible, that no man could imagine. If it was not recorded for us in the Bible, parting the sea, parting the sea, shutting and closing the mouth of ravenous lions, keeping men, three men from being burned to death when they're thrown into a fiery furnace. How is this possible? Could any man do that? Of course not. But God can so that not even a hair on their head was singed. What about raising someone from the dead? Who's been dead for four days? No man can do that, but God is able to do so. And there's so many other examples of the mighty power of God. These and many, many more in the Bible showing us the mighty power of God. And that same power that accomplished all of those miracles is within us. It is within us, there to help us in our time of need. And here, why should God help him? He says, because I have chosen God's precepts. He says, I have chosen your precepts. He's not a hypocrite. He's not a lazy man who's neglecting his duties and his responsibilities. He knows that God must give him his strength. But he also knows it is his duty and it is his responsibility to pursue the things of God with all of his might. To be resolved to keep God's precepts. So he's going to do whatever he can do in order to ensure that. He's not going to be a hypocrite but he will choose the pathway of God's precepts. 174, he says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Here, he longs for the salvation of the Lord. He has this salvation in the form of a pledge. Already God has begun the good work of salvation in him, but he longs for it to be completed. Already he has been justified. Already he has the spirit of God as a pledge, as earnest money for what is to come, but he does not have the full final manifestation of salvation yet. Second Corinthians one Second Corinthians one twenty to twenty two The Holy Spirit here is given to us as a pledge. Second Corinthians 1, 20 to 22 says, For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God and anointed us as God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The Spirit is a pledge given to us by God as a testimony to us constantly that God loves us, that God has begun the work of salvation, that God will not fail to safely bring us into His heavenly kingdom. We should never doubt the love of God. We should never doubt whether our salvation will be completed. And the proof that God has given to us, that He will certainly bring it about, is the Holy Spirit. He is a pledge to the believer. Well, this is the case with the prophet David. He is not a natural man anymore. He is a spiritual man. His eyes have been opened to eternal spiritual realities. He has the spirit of God within him. He has been justified by faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is no longer under the wrath of God. He's no longer under the condemnation of God. Yet, he still lives in a world filled with sin. He lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. He is surrounded everywhere by sin, sorrow, death, misery, hardships. These things are his companion all the time. And he wants to be free of these things. He wants to be in the presence of God fully when all of the evil of the world will be gone. Everything will be wiped away. All the evil from outside, such as the devil and the world, and all the evil that is within him such as his own flesh. He wants to be completely set free from sin and death. This is why he longs for the salvation of God, for God to give to him the outcome of his faith, the salvation of his soul. Revelation 21, this is what he longs for. And this is what all true believers long for. This is as it says at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4 that all who long for His appearing. Why do we long for His appearing? Because when He appears, this is what awaits us. This is what will be ours when He comes for us. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Have passed away. This is what he longs for to be with God, for God to be among him, to dwell with him, for all death, crying, mourning, pain, sorrow, all the things associated with this world of sin, for all of those things to be gone, and for him to be with the Lord always, and especially his own sin, for his own sin to be completely gone. Isn't this what we should long for as Christians? To not be bothered by the flesh anymore? To not be harassed constantly? That when we want to do right, evil lies close at hand? This is the way it is, according to Romans chapter 7. Well, he wants to be set free from that. He wants to be with the Lord. But he has to wait. And all of us have to wait. We have to patiently wait for our salvation to have its consummation. And while we wait, what should we do? Well, notice what he says. He longs for God's salvation, and he says, Your law is my delight. While he waits for the salvation of God, God gives him a foretaste, a foretaste of heavenly life in the Word of God. So he delights in it. He goes to the Word of God because it tells him about heaven. It tells him about the promises of God. It tells him about what awaits him. It reminds him of all these things. It teaches him the will of God. And since his greatest longing is to be with the Lord forever and ever, then now in this life, the best thing he has is the word of God. That's what he has now that he delights in, that gives him a preview, a foretaste of heaven, even on this earth. He delights in it. 119, Let my soul live that I may praise you, and let your ordinances help me. Here, he needs life. He wants life, not merely physical life for his body. Certainly, we need that from the Lord. But here, even in his soul, the inner man, the spiritual man, he wants his soul to live. He wants his whole being to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. We know from John 4 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is spirit. His life is spiritual. And this is what he wants in his soul. He wants the spiritual life of God in him, dwelling within him, so that he can worship God properly. He knows that only God has this life in himself, and God can give it to him. So he's asking for God to grant him this life. This is also as it says in 1 Corinthians 15:45. The first man Adam became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus is a life-giving spirit. He is the only one that can give spiritual life. Who can raise the souls of men from death?